This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Genesis 27, 41 through 28, 9. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. In the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day? Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heth, like those who are the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise and go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take himself a wife from there. And as he blessed him, he gave him a charge, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Also Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife, in addition to the wives he had. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this day, I pray that you would by your spirit illuminate our hearts and prepare them to receive it, that even as we see Yet another difficult chapter of our family history, one littered with sin and its consequences. We pray that you would even shine forth the gospel in it and your covenant faithfulness and your covenant promises even to sinners. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems that in our society, Christianity seems to often be lumped in with the idea of family values. There are many Christian-based organizations that have family in their name. 
And there's Christians who run for office that seem to adopt a family values platform. Now, make no mistake, family is very important to God's people because God has told us that it ought to be. We read earlier the fifth commandment about honoring parents. You can read the larger catechism and how it treats the fifth commandment, and it actually offers an expansive and comprehensive view of human relationships, drawing from that command, but also other places in Scripture, describing not only relationships between children and parents, but all human relationships where authority or submission or even equality are involved. Christians also value and defend and protect marriage. We read earlier the seventh commandment, and we value marriage because God values marriage. He created man, male and female, to marry for one, for one man and one woman to form a one-flesh, lifelong covenantal bond. And marriage is our most profound earthly picture of Christ and his relationship with the church. So all this to say, based on what the Bible says, family relationships matter to God, and so they should matter to us. However, this Christian emphasis on family does not mean that things are always perfect in Christian families. In fact, very rarely in this fallen and sinful world is that the case. Last week, in the first part of Genesis 27, we saw a lot of awful people doing awful things. We saw how Isaac stubbornly, rebelliously against God, who had purposed to bless Jacob, instead wanted to bless Esau, his favored and beloved son. But then we saw how Rebekah and Jacob schemed and plotted and deceived to steal that blessing away. These are dark days in the house of the faithful here in Genesis. Now, we have clearly seen how one in that house, Esau, the oldest son, really doesn't belong in that house. He has rejected God. We see this in how at every turn he has despised the things of God. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He married the Canaanite wives that were a trouble to his parents. He insisted on having and taking the blessing even as God had revealed that it was not to be his. Of course, Esau is not the only problem here. Even among the faithful, Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob, we have seen immoral and rebellious and dishonest behavior. Isaac disregarded God's revelation as to which son was to be blessed. Rebekah thought it nothing to deceive her husband into giving the blessing to someone other than he intended. Jacob wasn't at all concerned about the evil in the act, but just the practical consequences, getting caught, getting in trouble, getting a curse from his father instead of a blessing. He willingly went along with the scheme, even blaspheming God's name when Isaac was suspicious of the success in hunting that he had. Things are bad in the family of the faithful in this passage. They are really bad. I mentioned last week that Jacob, who will be the patriarch of Israel, is at the very beginning of a long and painful and difficult road of sanctification. He is not at this point a man ready to lead anyone or anything. His parents haven't provided a good or godly example for him to follow. 
His brother now hates him. Today, we see the response and the fallout to the treacherous episode from last time. We see more sin, more sorrow, more division in the family. And yet, even in this, we see flashes of hope, flashes of light, flashes of God's covenant promises shining through. We'll look at this text today in three points. First, we see murder in verses 41 through 45. That's about the worst starting point we could have. But in light of Jacob's treachery, Esau wants him dead. Now, he will not succeed in this, but it shows just how bad things are. Then second, we see marriage in verse 46 of chapter 27 through verse 5 of chapter 28. As Jacob is now the head of the household, the carrier of the covenant blessings, he needs a wife, and we see arrangements made for that. But then third, we see manipulation in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 28. Esau, realizing that he has made some wrong choices, tries to make things right, tries to appease his parents, but it is too little, too late. So murder, marriage, and manipulation, those are our points for this morning. So first we see murder in verses 41 through 45 of chapter 25. We pick up immediately after the treachery of our previous passage. As might be expected, given what has happened and what Jacob has taken from Esau, Esau hates Jacob. But it's not just the usual inter-family conflict where they may not speak again or they may have an awkward time at the next family gathering. No, Esau hates Jacob with such an intense hatred that he conspires in his heart to murder him. He's decided to wait until Isaac dies and the days of mourning are over, he has enough restraint to not heap death and sorrow upon death and sorrow. Really, more than anything, given the situation as it now stands between Esau and Jacob and Rebekah, the only reason it seems that Esau doesn't kill Jacob immediately is for the sake of his father Isaac, whom he loves. In this regard, it is providential that while Isaac thought his death was near, it actually wasn't. As I mentioned last week, Isaac is going to live for several more years. Because Isaac doesn't die, Esau doesn't have a clear opportunity to kill Jacob. God uses this as a means to preserve Jacob's life. By the time Isaac does finally die, Jacob and Esau will have reconciled. They will live in peace with their own estates and families secured. But that day is not today. Esau's waiting for Isaac to die so he can kill Jacob. And though he plotted it in his heart, he seems to have also said it in words because Rebekah hears about it in verse 42. And she breaks the news to Jacob. Then she gives him some instructions, which should sound a little familiar based on things that have happened before in Genesis. She wants Jacob to go to the east, to the land of Haran, to her family, specifically Laban, her brother. Remember that Laban was there and seemed to be largely running the household when Abraham sent his servant there to find a wife for Isaac. Now the initial plan seems to be to send Jacob there for a short time, a few days, just long enough to give Esau some time to settle down and forget what has happened if he could possibly forget. 
The journey was great, but not so great that it had to be permanent. Rebecca would be able to send for Jacob when the trouble was over and it was safe for him to return. And then the sorrow of losing Jacob would not have to be piled on top of the sorrow of losing Isaac. Of course, again, neither is actually going to pass at this time. But how bad are things in the household of the faithful when brother is turned against brother with murderous intent? It's like Cain and Abel all over again, back from the beginning of Genesis. Of course, this just further shows how Esau is in rebellion against God. It is true that what has been done to him is evil. Although God revealed from the beginning that he purposed to bless Jacob and that Esau would serve Jacob, Esau was swindled. Something was taken from him that he thought was his. That said, he didn't have to act with such murderous intent. Murder is wrong. It has always been wrong in the sight of God. Esau doesn't seem to care. As we saw before, Esau is a man led by his base desires. He acts according to what he wants and what is good and convenient for him and not according to God's will. He sold his birthright for soup because he was hungry. He married Canaanite wives because he desired women. Now he plots to murder his brother because he wants revenge. Esau is a law and a God unto himself. He has no regard and no place in his heart and his life for the word and the will of the living God. So the question we should ask as we ponder that is, What about us? What about you? Who do you live for? Who is the Lord of your life? Is it God or is it yourself? Esau was a law and a God unto himself, and he is a warning. He's someone who was born into the household of faith. He would have learned and heard, been taught the things of God. He would have had every opportunity before him, and yet he rebels. He rejects them. He would rather serve himself. Of course, God is sovereign in this. Paul, in fact, in Romans, uses Jacob and Esau as a paradigm for election. He does this in Romans 9, verses 10 through 13, which says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Paul here is quoting from the prophet Malachi, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So God chose Jacob. God elected Jacob unto salvation and eternal life. Esau, he did not. God's sovereign purposes and election work out in the lives of these two brothers. Now, this is not any grounds for self-righteousness or boasting on the part of Jacob, for we have seen and will continue to see that Jacob is a sinner. Jacob is an awful person doing awful things. But God is with Jacob and will work his good pleasure in Jacob while passing Esau by. This works out in Esau's worship and regard, not of God, but of himself and of his desires. 
And this is most clearly seen in his desire not to honor what God has said and purpose, but to kill the one on whom God has set his blessings. Just as those who rejected and killed our Lord Jesus despised the blessings of God and the one he anointed, so too Esau despises the blessings of God and is severed from them. But Esau will fail in his plot to kill Jacob. He will be thwarted, and life must go on. And this brings us to our second point. After murder, we come to marriage in 2746 through 285. While initially the plan was to just send Jacob to Laban temporarily to take the heat off from Esau, the journey begins to take on an expanded purpose and interest. Rebecca speaks to Isaac and tells him that she is weary of her life because of the daughters of Heth, the Canaanite wives of Esau. They're so loathsome to her that she would rather be dead. She cannot bear the thought of her beloved Jacob doing likewise. If it happens, she asks, what good will my life be to me? Perhaps she is being a bit hyperbolic. But even so, this points to a real problem. Isaac had never made provision for Esau to marry properly. And so now he is married improperly. Now that Jacob is the head of the household and the one who is to carry forth the covenant blessings, he needs to have a wife. Now given the power that wives can exert over their husbands, a wife from among the pagan Canaanites would have almost certainly been a corrupting influence, a hindrance not only to Jacob's life, but to his faith. And this is always the case when Christians, when God's people marry outside the faith. It is among the most grave and destructive of errors that one can make. Isaac, thanks to Rebecca's appeal, is now, because he's not dead like everyone thought he would be, spurred into action. Up to this point, it seems he could not be bothered to find a wife for his sons, especially Jacob. I mean, before this whole episode, he probably didn't really care about Jacob that much at all. He loved Esau. He wanted to give all the gifts to Esau. So he probably hadn't given much thought to a wife for Jacob. But now, after this treachery, whether he likes it or not, Jacob is the son of promise, and proper plans need to be made. Now, in a sense, this is God's providence as well. Jacob, at the time he received the blessing, had yet been undefiled by foreign women. But now this situation needs to be dealt with. So what began as an opportunity for Jacob to go away for a while and not get murdered, now turns into a trip to get a wife. In chapter 28, verse 1, Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him, but also charges him not to take a wife from the Canaanites. Now, this is what he should have done to Esau much sooner, but it was too late and there was no going back. Isaac would have known from his own life and experience and what Abraham did for him that intermarriage between his people and the Canaanites was unacceptable. But he either never relayed this to Esau or Esau did not care. Esau had, after all, showed no small tendency towards rebellion and satisfying his base desires, even if it grieved those around him. 
So Isaac sends Jacob where that servant of Abraham had gone to find Rebekah, that is the house of Bethuel and of Laban. It worked once, maybe it will work again. But also when he does this, Isaac adds blessings. He restates the Abrahamic blessings, but also in them mixes some of the blessings given to Adam and Noah. In verse 3, he says, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples. This language of fruitfulness and multiplication can be traced all the way back to creation. When God created Adam and Eve, he bid them to be fruitful and multiply. And then after the flood in the days of Noah, the same blessing was given to Noah and his descendants that they ought to be fruitful and multiply. But this blessing here is limited to the covenant community, the community of the faithful. Now, this is not to say that others will not physically be fruitful and multiply. Ishmael was a great nation. Esau would be a great nation. But only one would be the household of the faithful, blessed by God. Isaac transfers to Jacob the blessings of Abraham. The descendants, the inheritance of the land. Now, as with Abraham and Isaac, Jacob will never see these promises, at least their temporal elements of them fully realized. He will, in fact, finish his days and die in the land of Egypt. His descendants will not possess the land for hundreds more years. But the promises remain. The covenant of grace stands and continues. It is passed down through the line of the faithful, which now goes through Jacob. And it is through the line of Jacob that this covenant will come to its highest expression and its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not all positive developments. Remember, Jacob is being sent away because his brother wants him dead. There will be a physical reality of estrangement and separation and enmity to reflect the reality that this family has been torn into pieces. Jacob might think he's only leaving for a short while, but he's going to be gone for many years. He will be separated from his people and his family and his place. God will ultimately work it for good, but it will come at a high cost. Isaac and Rebekah will be left behind with Esau, while the son of promise will face many hardships and trials in the house of Laban. What will happen to Esau? This brings us to our final point. After murder and marriage, we come to manipulation in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 28. Seems that maybe after all this wreckage and conflict and chaos in the family, Esau has something of a moment of self-reflection. He starts to realize maybe everything isn't the way it should be. He sees and hears these developments with Jacob and realizes that he has a problem because Jacob was charged not to take a wife from among the Canaanites. Esau would look at himself and think, uh-oh, I have not one but two wives from among the Canaanites. Now there's no going back from this. Once married, there's no unmarrying. But Esau also now seems to recognize that his Canaanite wives are not pleasing to Isaac. So Esau goes to Ishmael, remember Isaac's older brother, but not of the line of promise, 
and takes a wife there. Now this is a fascinating development for a few different reasons. One must wonder what motivated Esau this way. We see that he does recognize the displeasure his foreign wives caused Isaac. Could it be that Esau is still holding out some hope that he can somehow, in Jacob's absence, work his way back into being the favored son and the head of the household? If he would kill for that, why not take a third, yes, third wife to do that? Of course, even in this, Esau shows that he is missing the point. For one thing, he's taking yet another wife, practicing polygamy, which is never the way that God intended for his people to live. But for another, he goes to the house of Ishmael. Now, the house of Ishmael would have been closer to the target. Ishmael was a son of Abraham and the Egyptian maidservant Hagar. Ishmael himself had an Egyptian wife, but the problem wasn't so much ancestry as it was the spiritual reality behind it. Like Esau, Ishmael was not the son of promise. Ishmael, like Esau, had once despised the blessings of God. Remember that it was at the weaning of Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah, that Ishmael scoffed. And in doing so, not only scoffed Isaac as a rival brother, but scoffed all that God had revealed about his promises to Isaac, all the promises of the covenant of grace. And it is for this offense that Ishmael and his mother Hagar were finally and permanently sent away, cast out of the house of Abraham. So Esau, this despiser of God's covenant and God's blessings, thinks that he can somehow earn back favor by taking a wife from the house of Ishmael, who despised God's covenant and God's blessings. Sure, technically, Ishmael's family were not Canaanites, but spiritually, in all the ways that mattered, it was all the same. The forbidding of marriage to Canaanites was not about the Canaanites as a people or ethnicity or nation. It was about who they were and where they stood in the eyes of God. They were themselves the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah, who was cut off, who was severed from the city of God because he also despised God's covenant and God's blessings. Over and over again, this repeats itself. Though peoples and nations grow and form outside the house of the faithful, they have done so in rebellion and apostasy. I mentioned earlier Cain and Abel. Cain murdered his brother. He was allowed to live. He was allowed to grow into nations, but did so despising God. So in Esau and his marriages, we see something of a microcosm, a coming together of all these various iterations of the city of man and the vanity of it all. All these peoples that had departed from God, that had rebelled against God. Esau marrying this daughter of the Ishmaelites won't do anything about the ultimate problem. Whatever love he has for Isaac, he has despised Isaac's God. He has no true repentance, no faith, no desire for anything but himself. Even in this marriage, it seems that Esau is just undertaking an effort to manipulate his parents. Look, Dad! 
Look, Mom, I have a wife that's not a Canaanite. As though that's the thing that really matters. So Jacob is on his way. We'll see in the chapters to come, Lord willing, Jacob's sanctification and the long, difficult road that takes. And we'll see more of Esau later. What we see in these two sons is the distinction we have seen over and over again in Genesis between two lives, two ways of living, two cities, two peoples. Now we see that for both, there is often involved sin and sorrow, as none who walk this earth do so apart from the scourge of sin and its consequences. But there is a key difference. Esau lives for himself, for his getting what he wants when he wants it. Even if he has to go to such depths as killing his own brother or marrying three wives. Esau is only interested in the things of this world because he belongs to this world. Now Jacob was a sinner. We saw last week how Jacob was a deceiver and a fraud, a blasphemer. Certainly no great moral example. So both Esau and Jacob are sinners. But Jacob is a sinner under the gracious promises of God. Jacob is a sinner in God's covenant, a sinner saved by grace through faith. Jacob is a Christian, though he only sees Christ in types and shadows through these covenant promises that God gave Abraham, and Abraham passed to Isaac, and Isaac has now passed to him. In those promises are the words of life. The gospel being shown forth. Esau misses this. Esau doesn't care about this. Esau despises this and sells it out for lesser things every chance he gets. So what about you today? You are a sinner. I am a sinner. That is a given. We are all sinners. We've probably all done some of the things that Jacob and Esau have done. Lies, deceptions, plotting evil. The question is, are you a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ or a sinner persisting in your rebellion and sin and seeking your own ways unto your destruction? Those are the only two outcomes. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. Those who receive the gift of faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, His perfect life and atoning death, and His resurrection by which He conquered death, are forgiven of their sins and have the hope and promise of everlasting life. Do not be like Esau. Do not think you will find your own way to life and blessedness. Do not live like this world is the only thing that matters. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus, for life is in Him alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this word You've given us, though it describes another dark episode, dark chapter in the history of our family, the history of your covenant people. 
We also see shown forth in it the promises of the covenant of grace, the promises of the gospel. And though we all are sinners, by your power, by your sovereign election, and by your grace, you have chosen a people from out of sin and death to be your own. I pray that all here gathered would have this faith, worked in them by your Holy Spirit, would trust in you, and would proclaim you to a lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.